listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning and peace be with you. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, uh, my name is Cole. I'm one of the pastors here. It's good to be with you this morning as we continue uh, looking at the life of Abram, who in a couple of chapters we will come to know as Abraham in the book of Genesis. And Genesis 15 really is, um, this is one of the most essential passages for us to understand the Christian faith, uh, the, the faith that the scriptures teach us in all the Bible. And I, I know I'm guilty of always saying this is a really important passage because they're all really important. Uh, but this one in particular, it gives us, uh, it gives us a lot but it is veiled in what to our sensibilities and even our senses is strange, right? God is presenting himself as a smoking pot and a flaming torch passing between pieces of dead animals, like through this passageway of dead animals. Abram's waving off vultures. Um, He's under this uh, divine anesthetic, um, and God's telling him about uh, all these enemies that they're going to face and everything that's going on. It's strange, and it's easy when we read a passage like this, I think especially when we read it alone and devotionally, to think, okay, this seems important, but, but it's odd. Uh, there's a lot of details that are hard to parse. I'm just going to move on. But this chapter is so significant for us to formate, formulate a, a doctrine of who God is, uh, what his love is like, um, what the gospel of grace uh, according to the scriptures is, and our understanding of what it means for us to be in relationship with God. And so even though this passage is strange in many ways, I'm convinced that Genesis 15 speaks to the longings of the human heart in ways that that many passages don't begin to do. Um, It gives us key insight into how God has chosen to relate to mankind. And it really couched within this text, there's a lot of good news. Uh, good news for, uh, for people who struggle with doubt in their faith, who, who wonder how they can trust God to bring his promises to pass, how they can trust in his unending love for them, how they can trust his forgiveness for them. Um, there's a lot of good news for people who experience hardship and suffering and wonder how they can believe that God's love is still uh, upon them. And so with all that in mind, let's pray and then let's look into the text together. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a covenant-making God, that you have seen fit to bind yourself to us through your son, through your word, that you have proven yourself to be trustworthy and that you have put your glory at stake so that we might trust you. I pray that you would awaken our hearts to your beauty and your love for us, that, that those of us who come in this morning with doubts, or in the midst of suffering, or with fears that that your love won't remain for them, that your forgiveness will run out for them, that you would bolster our faith with assurance, that you would allow us to take hold of you more confidently. And so live a life of faith following you. Let us learn from this passage. Let us see not only past, but in all, all of the strange details that we might understand more and more of your beauty and who we are in light of you. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. 
So the, the Christian life is built upon the, really the simple good news that God loves us, right? This is, if you've been around the church for any amount of time, you've heard God loves you, right? That, that God loves us and that he's made a way for us to be forgiven for all of our wrongdoing in his son, Jesus, and that he's invited us to enjoy him forever. And all of this grace of God, according to the Christian gospel, we are told is free. And, and all we need to do is, is believe God at his word, to believe in God, in his son, and that, that we get all of this grace, this unending love, this uh, uh, unending forgiveness. But if, I think most of us are honest, if not all of us, free grace is hard for us to trust, right? It's a hard thing for us to trust because in our lives, unconditional love is almost impossible to come by. So how can we know that God won't quit us? When we know that people will, that if we fail people enough, they'll walk away. And, and if, we, if we abandon people and relationships that we have with people enough, those relationships will be severed. The love will be lost. So how can we believe that God won't be like that? How can we be sure that he'll keep on forgiving us though we fail him over and over and over because we don't have any human relationships where we can surely count on unending forgiveness. We have things that are close, maybe your spouse, maybe your parents, but even then, you know there's a degree to which you could offend, a degree to which you could sin against them, a degree to which you could abandon them that love would be lost that forgiveness wouldn't be certain. And so how can we rest in easy that God's love for us is constant? And the Bible's answer to that question is covenant, that God is a covenant-making God. And so the story of Abram that we've been exploring, it begins with God calling this man, Abram, out of his homeland to follow him and, and to live a life of faith. But the faith of Abram is always a faith in a God who has made promises to him. It's not this abstract idea of a God. It's a God who says, come, I'm, I'm going to make you into a great nation. He's promised Abram that he will give him offspring, though he's old and his wife is childless. He's promised that he will give him a land to possess, though the land that he's told he will possess is inhabited by wicked and violent kingdoms. He's told him that he will bless those who bless him, that he will curse those who curse them, and that one day his nation will be a blessing to the whole world. But in Genesis 15, things develop in the story of Abram and the story of God's redemption of mankind. See, the promises that were given to Abram beginning in chapter 12 are now clarified. And they're bound up in a formal covenant ordained by God and administered by God with the glory of God at stake. And what we need to know about covenants is that covenants are more than promises. Covenants are binding agreements between parties. And they are binding agreements to set the terms of a relationship to work toward a common goal. In ancient Near Eastern culture, covenants would be made between kings to make agreements for trade or for peace or for allyship in war. Covenants would be made between men to, to have certain agreements as to how their households might relate to each other. And in covenants, there are obligations on each side. And there's promises of blessing if the covenant is kept. That there are certain things that will be a reward for those who keep covenant. But covenants also have the promise of curse. If I don't keep this covenant, ill will befall me. And usually the curse of a covenant is death. 
Covenant relationships are, are important. But at the core of covenant theology in the Bible is this idea that God has made a binding relationship with his people based on the phrase that we see him say over and over and over again in the scriptures, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And that God has bound himself to that word, that I will be your God and you will be my people. And God, prior to Genesis 15, has already made covenant with people. He made covenant with Adam and Eve in the garden, and then when they sinned, he made another covenant, a covenant of redemption or of grace, in which he said, one day I will redeem the world through one of Eve's offspring. I will redeem the world. I will crush the serpent. I will put death to death. I will rid the world of sin. He made a covenant with Noah after the flood, saying, I will never destroy the world again with a flood. And so the covenants so far in the history of humanity are very broad. I will redeem humanity and I will be peaceful toward the world regardless of how sinful it is. I will not destroy it again. But now in Abram, he's making a clarifying covenant. He's saying the way I will redeem the world is through a great nation. The way I will make peace with the world is through a specific people, namely the people who come from Abram's offspring. They will be a great nation. Let's begin the text and see why that matters later on. It says, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. It says, fear not, Abram. God says, fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. So this is important. Abram has been fighting in a violent world. And he's found respect among men of war. That was in the previous chapters. But existence in a violent world is cause for fear, right? And so God comes to Abram with a desire to bolster his confidence in, and his courage. He says, fear not, I am your shield. So though the nations rage around you, though these men of war surround you, I will be your shield. I will protect you. You are safe in me and your reward will be very great. Now, now, the reward isn't necessarily a promise of riches. Abram was offered a reward from the king of Sodom in the previous chapter, and he denied it, and he said he gave a tithe of his wealth to the king of righteousness, Melchizedek. And so God is not saying, I'm going to make you rich. He's saying, your reward is that I will be your shield. Your reward is that you get me. See, the best part of the good news of belonging to God is not that we get blessings, though we do. And it's not even as Christians that we get eternal life, though that's a really great aspect of our reward. But the best reward that we get is that we get God, that we get God, that we get to be his people, that we get to have relationship with him. Because what is heaven if Christ is not there? What is the land of Canaan for Abram if God's presence flees from him? The reward of Abram and for all who believe in God in faith is that they get him. They get God. He is our reward. It says, but Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look toward the heavens and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. I love this passage. So 
So God promises Abram, he says, I'll be your shield and your reward. And Abram remembers this promise that God has expressed to him multiple times over and over that he was going to give him offspring. And Abram says, how can I trust your word? You haven't even given me a son. This other man in my household is set to be my heir. The things that you've promised aren't coming to pass. How will I know? And... And God gives Abram a reminder of his promises by giving him a reminder of his power. It's beautiful. He takes him outside and he invites Abram to turn his gaze heavenward and to look upon the cosmos. And and in this, he says, one, it's an object lesson, right? Look how many stars there are. This is going to be like your offspring. I'm really going to do this. But, but there's a, an undercurrent there where God has taken Abram out of his tent into the night to look at the heavens and to behold the creation of the God of creation. And, and to say, Abram, I put all those lights in the universe by my word. And my word has been that I will give you a son and you shall be many. So you can trust me because my universe testifies to my trustworthiness. My universe testifies to my power. The things I have created testify to the, my ability to bring my promises to pass. And then something beautiful happens in, in verse 6. Verse 6 is, is one of the most fundamental issues of the gospel of Christianity. It says, and he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is, this is the linchpin of the gospel of grace, that righteousness comes simply by believing the Lord. Abram was counted righteous by God, though he wasn't righteous on his merits. Remember what he did in Egypt? He was counted righteous because he believed God at his word. He put the whole stock of his life in the promises of God, even though the promises of God in earthly terms seem bleak and unlikely. He looked toward the heavens and he believed God. He wasn't counted righteous because he was a conquering warrior, though he was. He wasn't counted righteous because he chose allegiance to the right king in the previous chapter, though he did. He he wasn't counted righteous because he saved his nephew from a POW camp in this great act of courage and bravery, though he had done those things. Never in those events did God say, Abram, you're righteous. No, Abram is counted righteous because he believed God at his word. He believed God to be God. He believed that if God promised it, he would do it. To believe God, brothers and sisters, is righteousness. Goes on, and he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, bring me a heifer three years old a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So this is where we begin the actual covenantal formula in the text. And and I'm going to spare you like a, a, a lecture on Near Eastern covenants in the ancient world, but God is following a sort of formula that Abram would have recognized. He would have known this is what kings do. This is what leaders do when they make covenant. They, they cut animals. They, they set them in, in two columns so that the people who are participating in the covenant can pass through the pieces knowing that these animals would represent human life. 
And we know this because he begins, God begins by giving his title and his um, resume. He says, I am the Lord your God who called you out of your former life. And I'm gonna give you this land. And Abram doesn't argue that, that God is the Lord. He doesn't argue that God brought him out of his former life. He doesn't really argue anything, but he says, how am I to be sure that you will keep this promise? The land you promised me is full of violent city-states and kings. How can I know it's going to be mine? Brothers and sisters, if you have ever struggled with assurance of God's love, if you've ever struggled with assurance that God's promises for you are trustworthy or that your salvation is sure, lean in here because Abram in the Bible is the archetypal man of faith. He's the archetypal man of faith and God has given him promises over and over and over again. He's been faithful to him over and over and over again. He just took him on a midnight stroll and showed him the fullness of his glory. And still, when God says, I'm gonna give you this land, Abram says, how can I be sure? That's good news for you. If you struggle with doubt, that's good news for you if you want assurance. And what's better news is God doesn't say, haven't I done enough already? He says, no, let's cut a covenant. I'm gonna give you something that you can be sure on. So God asked Abram to bring him animals to sacrifice so that they can cut this covenant. See, the stars were a sign of the promise of many offspring, but God's assurance for his people, it never ends with an appeal to the created order. Right? God could just appeal to his power in creation and say, I mean, just look around. If you don't want to believe me, that's your problem. But I'm powerful. I'm God. I made you. I made all of this. You can trust me. But in his grace, God wants Abram to have even more confidence in him. He wants Abram to believe him even more deeply. He wants Abram to have something concrete that he can remember, that he can hold on to, that he can say, I know God's going to do what he said. God doesn't gain anything by making covenant with people. Like he has nothing to gain from us by making covenant. He puts his glory on the line simply so that we can be sure that he's gonna be good, so that we can be sure that he's going to love us. Covenant making from a perfect creator is grace. And as we're gonna find out, it's bloody and costly grace on the part of God. It says, as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for 400 years, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete goes on, it says, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land. So I want to point out three things about this event that I think are really significant. The first is that God's covenant with Abram involves him disclosing the future slavery in Egypt the suffering of the people, and the, the, the a long amount of time it's going to take for his promises to come to pass, and that it's going to come through his redemption of them. That's the first thing. The second thing is that God's covenant with Abram 
involves God telling Abram that he's not going to get to see any of the promises come to pass. That, that he's asking Abram to believe him, that he's going to give his offspring this land, that they're going to be a great nation that blesses the nations of the world, that all of this is going to happen, but you're not going to see it happen. And this, the third thing is that, that in a traditional covenant, in the ancient Near Eastern world, both parties who are making the covenant would, would take their turns passing between the pieces. But in this covenant, only God passes through the pieces. Only God passes through the pieces. So let's talk about why that's significant. We're going to start from there and work back. So in ancient covenants, these, these animal sacrifices would represent human life. Like everybody entering the covenant would understand that these, these animals are representing humans. They are representing human life. And both parties, after they would settle the terms of the covenant, what's the agreement? How are we going to relate to each other? What obligations are we going to have? They would take turns passing through the pieces of the animals. And it's a way of saying, if I don't uphold my end of the deal, let me become like them. Let me be brought to nothing. I shall be put to death. I will incur a curse upon myself if I don't keep my word. That's why covenants are much more significant than promises, right? Like you're, you're, you're making a bloody sacrifice and saying, this is what it should be to me if I don't keep this covenant. That's serious. But in this covenant, only God passes through the pieces. Only God passes through the pieces. He is the one who's ordaining the covenant. He's the one on whom the obligations rest. He is the one who will incur curse if it doesn't come to pass. He's saying, it is so important to me that you understand how committed I am to blessing you, giving you offspring, bringing you into this great land, being the nation that I've promised you'll be so that you can bless the nations of the earth. I am committing so much of myself to it that I will put my name and my glory on the line to give you assurance that I will do it. God is swearing upon his own life, upon his own glory, that he will do what he has said. The God of the Bible, who created all things by the word of his mouth, said, if I don't keep my word, let me be like these animals. God swears upon his own life, upon his name, and, and, and there's nothing higher upon which he could swear. There's nothing higher upon which he could in, invoke trustworthiness than himself. He, he wants Abram to be sure. He wants him to be sure that he will do this. See, God's love for his people, his commitment to their flourishing is so important to him that he wants us to trust him so much that he hasn't only given us a promise, but he has meaningfully bound himself to us such that he has put his life and glory on the line for it. Abram said, how can I know? And God said, watch this. I will show you how you can know. That's important because God told Abram he's not going to see these things come to pass in his life. But, but in God passing through the pieces, it lets Abram live a life of faith, knowing that the promises that God gave him, that the blessings that God promised aren't dependent upon him to bring about in his lifetime. That Abram doesn't have to just go to war with all these nations so that he can make Canaan the home for his offspring. That Abram doesn't have to do all sorts of nefarious things to, to get an offspring for himself. He doesn't have to, to do all, all these things that it doesn't rest on him. It rests on God. God has said, this rests on me. 
So Abram gets to live a life of faith knowing that he's not gonna see the fullness of these things come to pass, but knowing that God will surely do it. And so he can live in trust and in hope and at peace, knowing that it doesn't rest on him. That's good news for us, brothers and sisters. That, that the ministry of the gospel and the kingdom of God expanding doesn't rest upon you. That God has said he will do it that he will reconcile all things to himself, that he will put all nations under his feet, that all of the things of God will come to pass. Why? Because of Christ, not because of us. It doesn't rest upon us. So the question then is, is why does God tell Abram about these 400 years of slavery and, and about how all these nations that currently inhabit Canaan are gonna keep doing that for a while? and that one day he's going to judge them, and one day he's going to redeem the people out of slavery and bring them into the land. Well, the first reason I'm convinced God did this is because this covenant was with Abram, but it was for Abram's offspring also. And he wanted Abram's offspring to believe God like Abram. He wanted Abram's offspring to know that God was surely going to do it, even though they had been in slavery for generations even though they're in bondage and suffering, even though the the nations that are inhabiting Canaan are still ruling and reigning in the land that's supposed to be theirs so that they would continue to have hope and trust that God was going to do it. God said this was going to happen. He made it part of the covenant that it was going to happen. So don't be surprised when it happens. Similarly, brothers and sisters, Jesus has promised us that we'll experience suffering. That, that the ministry of the church won't be easy, that there will be times in which we are afflicted, that there will be times in which our lives are on the line, that there will be a times when ministry is a lot slower than we expect, but he's made that part of his covenant to us so that when it happens, we don't lose hope. But I think more importantly in this passage, God tells them of slavery and redemption as a direct link to their identification as a great nation. See, the greatness of God's people is directly related to them being a redeemed people. Israel was not great in spite of having been slaves in Egypt. They were great because they were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them. They were great because their reward is God, that their lifeblood is his steadfast and redeeming love, that he has put his name upon them is what makes them great. They're great because their God is great. Their king is great. Their promiser is great, and so that makes them great, not because they were great. Similarly, the church is a great nation, not because we're numerous, though we are numerous, and it's not because we have wealth or influence or or merits upon which we can stand. The church isn't even grace because we do good unto the world, that we beautify the world through the proclamation of the gospel and through acts of charity and caring for our communities. None of those is why the church is great. We are great because we were dead in our sin and God rescued us unto eternal life. We were de- it, we are great because we had no hope and God has given us hope and he's given us his name. He's given us the name of sons so that we can be identified with the God who is great. That's what makes us great is that he is our reward and our shield. In the creation narrative in the Jesus Storybook Bible by Sally Lloyd-Jones, She's, she writes this thing that I think is just a really profound bit of theology. She describes the creation of Adam and Eve. And she says, and they were lovely because he loved them. 
They were lovely because he loved them. Humanity is lovely because God loves it. Not because we're inherently lovely, but because God loves us. And we are great because God is great. But our loveliness is dependent upon our lover, who is the God of the Bible. They are lovely because he loved them. And so it's through this great nation that God has promised he will redeem the world. Through Abram's offspring, through the the promised offspring, Jesus Christ. And so this is where it gets really beautiful. See, God's covenant love for his people didn't stop with Abram. It goes on. God makes covenant after Abram. He makes covenant with Moses. He makes covenant with David. And then he makes his covenant new in Jesus Christ. And once again, in the covenant made with Jesus Christ, God makes his very life the binding sign of the relational bond. God came to earth to a people who had rebelled against him, who had largely lost hope in his promise keeping, who were not great in worldly standards, who were decreasing in their stature in the world. They were slaves to sin, death. They were subject to the rule of Satan. And God came to them and he made them more promises. He promised them that those who trusted in him would have life and they would have it abundantly. He promised them that the kingdom of God would be given to them as their very inheritance. He promised that his father would never turn away a soul who came to him in faith. He promised his love, his forgiveness, and his blessings to them. And he promised that they would have it forever. That they would be great. And how did God ratify this covenant? Well, because the new covenant is greater than the one that precedes it, he didn't ratify the new covenant by passing through the pieces of slain animals. He became the pieces. He became the very sacrifice itself. See, the covenant with Abraham is preparing the way and foreshadowing the covenant that God makes with his people, the church, through Jesus Christ, where God died in order to secure his promised blessings for his promised people for all time as he promised in the beginning. And what is our covenant reward? Why are we a great nation, or as the Apostle Peter says, a holy nation, a kingdom of priests, a people for his own possession? Because we get God. Because we get to belong to God. Because we are the redeemed of God. Not because we deserve it. Not because we will see all of God's promises come to pass in our lifetime. Not because we've upheld our end of the bargain. That's why God was the only one to pass through the pieces because he knew there was no point in us doing so. We can't uphold our end of the bargain. But it's because God's love for us is so great that he has attached himself to us through the covenant love of his very own body and blood so that we can be sure that we are his forever. God has made us a promise, and you say, how can I be sure? God says, look to the cross, my friends. Look to the cross. And he has given us a sign of his love that extends beyond the event of the covenant ceremony at Calvary. He has given us bread and wine to partake of, to be to us the body and blood of Christ as we partake of it by faith. He says in John chapter 6, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He gave Abram his word and a sign of the smoking pot and a flaming torch passing through the pieces. In a couple chapters, he's going to give him another sign by which he can constantly remember. And Abram believed God, and it was counted to Abram as righteousness. But brothers and sisters, he has given us much more than he gave Abram on that day. He has given us his very life. He has shed his very blood. He has allowed his very body to be broken so that we can have surety of his love for us, confidence in his forgiveness for us. Our assurance is and reward is bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so when we come to the table, we do not feast on our obedience as a sign of God's love for us. We don't feast upon our faith as a sign of God's love for us. Our faith wavers and falters. Our obedience is is decent at best. No, we feast upon God himself. The sign of our assurance is that we feast upon God, that we feast upon his body and his blood And it is by God's love for us, his willingness to die for us, his binding of himself to us, that we can be assured that all of his promises will surely come to pass. So you who doubt, take heart and feast with joy. We can have confidence and assurance in God's love for us even when life is bleak even when circumstances are dire, even when we're bombarded with attacks from the outside, struggles on the inside, and suffering all about us from every side, we can have confidence. We can look at life and all of its hardships and say that we, who have come to God in Christ by faith, have truly received Christ and all of his benefits, as we say every week. Every single one of his benefits is ours. Benefits like endless grace like new life, like the transformation and renewal of our minds, like freedom from guilt and shame, hallelujah, like the blessing of being called true sons of God, though we deserve to be considered enemies and rebels forevermore. And so let us all believe God, whose word is trustworthy, whose heart for us and for the lost is steadfast love, and who will count our faith as meager as it may be, as righteousness for us for all time. That's good news. Somebody should say amen. Our faith makes us righteous, not because of the strength of our faith, but because of the object of our faith. The object of our faith is the promise-keeping, mountain-moving, always-forgiving, ever-loving God of the Bible who has bound himself to us in Jesus Christ. That is why our faith is counted to us as righteousness, because our faith is in the righteous one. At our core as humans, Really what we desire is to be loved and desired without the fear of losing those things. And yet these sorts of relationships are are basically impossible to find, right? And our hearts are always tempted to worry that people are going to quit us, right? Anybody who's been in a relationship with a human has worried that that human is going to quit them. Why do we fear this? Because we know ourselves, 
right? Because we know our warts and our faults. We know that at times we're not worthy of the love of others. We know that we have tendencies towards selfishness and dishonesty and meanness. And so our relationships always feel more tenuous than we would want them to. That's why Augustine said that our our hearts are not at rest until they find their rest in him. They cannot rest until they find their rest in God. And that's why the good news of God's covenantal love is so powerful. Because God's love is established, experienced, and maintained through a covenant that he bonded by his blood, that he ordained by his word, and that he will see to its end so that we receive all of the blessings of it. So this morning, as we've heard this word, let us come and feast upon God's covenantal love. And then be sent from the table where we feast and proclaim the God of covenant love to our neighbors and to the nations until our dying breath. Because as our souls have found their rest in him, our neighbors need their souls to find their rest in him too. They will find it nowhere else. Let's pray.